Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hey there, everyone. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. We are so glad that you've come back and joined with us for another night of Going Deeper Online. I am joined by some fabulous folks tonight. Let me introduce them to you. I'm not sure how they appear on your screen. On my screen in the top left, I've got Miranda Webster from the great state of Texas. Uh, In my top right there, I have my old friend Mark Bertrand from southwestern Ontario. In my bottom left, I've got Jesse Stewart from uh, Glendale, Kentucky. Right below there, I've got Crystal Humphrey from Calgary, Alberta. And then in my bottom right, I've got Peter Mahaffey from Parts Unknown. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Crystal and Peter, since this is your first week with us, I wonder if you take just a minute and introduce yourself to those who are watching. Uh, let them know who you are and and uh, maybe where you're uh, where you're at in your walk with the Lord in terms of how how long you've been walking with the Lord, where you are in ministry, that kind of thing. Go ahead. Crystal, why don't you start? Yeah, I'm Crystal. I'm from uh, Calgary area. Like Paul said, my husband, Clint, is the pastor of Calvary Grace Church there. Um, And I've been a pastor's wife now for, I guess, 13, 14 years. Uh, We've got three boys that are aged 8, 11, and 12. And you have another connection to TGC Canada. What's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm an editor for the Gospel Coalition Canada. Right on. Yeah. Good. All right, Peter, how about you? Yeah, my name is Peter. Um, I am uh, married to Gracie, um, who's been, I've known her since we were babies. Well, since she was a baby, because I'm four years older than her. And uh, we just had our first baby uh, seven weeks ago. Uh, her name's Inez. Um, I'm currently pastoring at Royal York Baptist Church in Toronto. Uh, the Etobicoke area of Toronto, so west end of Toronto. And I've been there just over a year now. It's actually 11 months. It was a revitalized work. So, and I, the Lord saved me when I was 16. And, um, and then ministry wise, it's been a, a journey to be where I am today. So now repeat your baby's name. What, what was that? Uh, Inez. Inez. And does that have a special meaning? Uh, it's a Spanish name. My wife's from Spain. Uh, well, she's Filipino, but she grew up in Spain and it means purity. Oh, right on. Good. Hey, quick question for you. I should know the answer to this, but you were born in the Philippines too, right? I was, yeah. yeah so when you say you knew each other as babies, was that was that where it was? Kind of, yeah, because my dad and her dad uh, planted churches in the Philippines together. 
but the first time I met her was when she was three. And uh, there's actually a picture of me pushing her in a stroller at the Toronto Zoo. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, very good. Well, good. That's fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for being with us. And we want to thank all of you who are joining us as well. We are on three different platforms tonight. Uh, We're on TGC Canada, their Facebook page. Uh, we're on Into the Word, uh, the Facebook page, and then also the YouTube page at Into the Word as well. So wherever you're finding us, we're glad that you're here. Wyatt told me to make sure to mention that, uh, or to make sure to welcome uh, viewers and watchers from all across Canada. He uh, he reminded me that we had people last week tuning in all the way from uh, BC over to Newfoundland. So we just want to welcome you wherever you are from, wherever you're tuning in. Uh, north to south, uh, stretching all the way down to the southern United States and uh, all the way up. I suppose Calgary would be our our northernmost uh, place in terms of uh, participants on the panel tonight. But we're just glad that you're here. And uh, we'd love for you to announce yourself. So if you can announce yourself in the comment section and let us know where you're from, that would be great. We want to make this as interactive as possible. So if you can put your uh, questions in there uh, about the readings, that would be fantastic. Um, the concept for this Going Deeper Online study is, is fairly straightforward. We're all users of the same Bible reading plan, uh, the RMM or Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. And so our thought is that we'll just get together on Thursday nights and we'll kind of look back over the ground that we have covered uh, and discuss things together, encourage one another, uh, try to unpack and apply uh, some of what we've seen in God's word together. So that's the plan. It's pretty simple. Uh, but obviously, it it only works if uh, if you participate, and hopefully you will. So send us some questions, and we'll leave some time at the end to get to them. Before we do anything, uh, Brother Jesse, I'm wondering if you could open us in prayer tonight. I'd be happy to. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege that we have to gather here online together. Lord, we pray now that as we turn your, our eyes towards your word, that you would be glorified and uh, your people edified. We ask, Father, that you and the Son would send your Spirit to illumine our eyes to all that you've been saying in our Bible readings this week. And Lord, we pray that our listeners would all be good Bereans after this conversation, that they would go and search the Scriptures to see if it is so. And so, God, we would you now uh, do your work through your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, last week, uh, we spent a fair bit of time at the beginning talking about how the whole COVID-19 thing had affected us as Bible readers. And, and it's, it's appropriate that it, that it would. Uh, every once in a while, in the providence of God, he, he shakes the cage a little bit, changes our perspective, and we're able to see some new things in God. And we talked last week a little bit about how that can be a challenge. And I think it was, Peter, you were mentioning there's a sense as a preacher too, you wonder how often do I make this point? How often do I land this plane on, you know, the COVID-19 application? It's, it's appropriate for us to wrestle with the challenges uh, implied uh, by this new reality, but it's also appropriate for us to just embrace uh, the benefit there, there, you know, David said, when I was afflicted, I'm, I'm thankful that I was afflicted. He says, because then I understood your precepts. Then I understood your word. So there's a sense in, in which, uh, a crisis uh, injects hermeneutical adrenaline into the brain and uh, helps us see things that that maybe we wouldn't otherwise. And so we talked last week about how so many passages have come alive for us in new ways. One this week that really struck me that I wanted to, to bounce around with you was Ecclesiastes 7.14. I thought we could start here. It, it says this, in the day of prosperity, 
be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, obviously that grabbed my attention. One of the debates that I've seen raging, uh, you know, on social media and as Christians interact with one another is this argument about how to understand the providence of God in a COVID-19 world. And so this verse obviously jumped, jumped right out at me. The the last half of that verse is kind of hard to understand. So I did a bit of a deep dive. Uh, What is that phrase? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What does that mean? Uh, Keel and Dillich were super helpful for me here. They said that it means God causes man to experience good and evil, that he may pass through the whole school of life. And when he departs hence, that nothing may be outstanding, which he has not experienced. So he's saying there that it means God will arrange sooner or later in your life. He's going to give you, you know, some time in the school of uh, prosperity and some time in the in the school or the class of adversity so that you can experience the whole range. You've had that whole perspective on who God is. Eaton, Michael Eaton says this, both prosperity and adversity have their uses. One leads to joy. The other draws attention to the realities of life and leads, if so allowed, to a life of faith and a sovereign God. Both are subject to God's will and part of his providence. The constant fluctuation between them keeps us dependent, not on our own guesswork, but on God who holds the key to all unknown. So here's what I want to throw out to you. How do we think about God's providence in a COVID-19 world? How comfortable are we saying that a, a global pandemic might be one of the tools in God's tool belt that he, that he uses to chastise his people, to call people to faith and repentance? Uh, does God do that? Is it appropriate uh, to, to think about those things? Yes or no? Uh, that's, that's a very live conversation uh, among evangelicals. Uh, Peter, why don't you get us started thinking about that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in your the thing you sent out to us, there was three questions in that, and it's mm-hmm. pretty loaded. But um, I'll try to address the f- the first two. Um, when you said, uh, "Does God use disease and even death to chastise the church and call the world to repentance?" The short answer is yes. Um, you know, even in this reading this past week, we we saw Leviticus twenty six, yeah. and there's the the punishment for disobedience and. And I think there's three times in that passage where God says, I will discipline you. I will discipline you. And he gives all ratchets up, doesn't it? Yeah. And he gives all these horrifying examples, horrifying to the modern ear of what God will do, whether it's pestilence, famine, all these kinds of different things. And then I've been uh, taking our church through this midweek devotional in the book of Jeremiah and in Jeremiah um, 19, God talks similar language in regards to how, Israel has been sacrificing their own children to pagan gods. Yeah. He's going to carry out kind of the same thing that he says in Leviticus 26. Now, I realize some would say, well, that's that's Israel. That's that's tied to the old covenant. Right. And there's truth to that. But the, the problem is, is that God also treats the Gentile pagan nations yeah. in a similar way as he does to Israel. And they yeah, do have a covenant with God. Um, and so, so you have that clearly in the Old Testament that God will do this to the pagan nations. You read the prophets and there's, there's, there's judgment against the nations, not just Israel. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you, you jump into the New Testament. And, you know, the first place you can go to is Revelation. But the problem is, is that and even though God it's apocalyptic, also, the, 
the language there is trying to convey these pictures are, so to speak, trying to convey these deep theological truths. And so you think of Revelation 15 and 16 with the, the bowls of God's wrath, yeah. and yeah. there's several different kinds. Um, and then, you know, you go to Hebrews 12, uh, the discipline of the Lord, right? God chastises his children. Um, he chast- chastises his sons. And, and there he even says that if you've never experienced discipline, it calls into question whether you're saved at all. Right, right. And and it's interesting, Hebrews 12 doesn't tell us specifically how God does it. Right. But if we have a a full scope of scripture, we know that God has a multitude of ways by which he chastises his children. Um, I think I've experienced that in my own life. I think probably everyone on on this video call um, would be able to express that. You think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, There, God, in a sense, disciplines Paul not to, not to, discipline him for sin, but to actually prevent him from sinning, to prevent him from becoming conceited. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I think the greatest example is 1 Corinthians 11 with the Lord's Supper, right? <laughs> well, Where, I, I don't know if you saw, that's the one that started the firestorm on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, so no. John Piper, um, you know, who, who occasionally stirs up controversy, <laughs> uh, John, John Piper uh, tweeted 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32. Right, which says basically he makes he makes a causal statement. He says, This is why some of you are sick and have fallen asleep, right? Because you've been sinful in this area. This is why. And it it blew up, and people said, you know, you are why uh, young evangelicals are leaving the church. Who who would say that God sends sickness on people? Um, and I mean, some of the stuff was terrible, like folks saying, like, who who believe who would want to believe in a God? who sends pneumonia to your grandma because you've been sinning uh, right. and, and no such God exists. And I remember thinking it's, it's an interesting day when a 75 year old pastor quoting a Bible verse lights Twitter on fire hmm. um, and offends every evangelical under 30. Uh, I just thought right. that's, that's an odd day. Yeah. 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 Interesting I, that you brought up that verse. Yeah, I just because it's it's so clear, right? I mean, Paul literally says that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. So, God disciplined the church in Corinth because of how they were approaching the Lord's Supper, um, you know. And then I, I remember you asking the question: Is why are so many evangelicals choking, so to speak, on on dealing with this issue of COVID nineteen and the sovereignty of God? And I mean, I could list off ten reasons, but you know, the first two that come to my mind is simply. Um, we have neglected in, I think, many churches, the study of God and yeah. how he relates yeah. to the creation. You know, if I were to say uh, God is the most powerful being in the universe, I think a large majority of Christians would say that's true, but it's actually not true. Yeah. Um, God's not the most powerful being in our universe. God is supreme over the universe yeah. and the universe, the cosmos, all that's created, all that's uh, material created and spiritual are contingent upon God. And, and, you know, you think of Colossians 1, 15 to 20, all things hold together in Christ. Hebrews 1, he, uh, he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Paul says we live and move and have our being in God. So God is the supreme being and the cosmos is contingent upon him. And so we are utterly dependent upon him for our existence and our sustained existence. So if we're dependent upon him for our sustained existence, the idea of the sovereignty of God isn't too difficult to grasp at that point, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one of the reasons. I just think we have a very 
poor understanding of who God is because we we don't spend a lot of time studying his character, his attributes, how he works, how he relates to creation. And then, then yeah, this, no, I think you're right. Yeah, and the second reason, I'll just I'll just finish this in the because I'm, yeah. I'm talking too much. But yeah, no. uh, the second reason I think I think we have a skewed idea of love in our society. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, basically, we we live in a society that says um, love is reduced to tolerance, and you know, accepting you as who you um, accepting you for who you are, um, which means that to intervene in any way is not love. And so it's impossible for the modern mind to, to see harm or pain from someone as an act of love in any form. And, and I think all of us know as either being a parent or a child, if our parents didn't cause us pain in some form, they probably didn't love us, yeah. right? They had to discipline us. And, and so I think in the, in the same thing with, when it comes to God is God will discipline. He will cause pain for his purposes because he has greater purposes that we're unaware of. So. Yeah. Good. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I would say the same culture that thinks that spanking your child is mm -hmm. child abuse probably has no category for a God who might wield a pandemic as a, as a tool towards an ultimate, ultimately salvific end. Yeah. Anybody else want to jump in on that? I, that, that it's been a, a fairly raging controversy and and I'm curious to know whether there's kind of an age breakdown or anything like uh, anything of that nature. You you talked, Peter, about how we've no longer taught the doctrine of God. Is is that something that that younger evangelicals are more likely to struggle with than older evangelicals? I'm just curious. I don't have a comment related to that. But with this question, one thing that came to my mind um, was Thomas Watson's All Things for Good. And the quote in that, if you're unfamiliar, he takes Romans 8.28, which says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And then he just breaks that down throughout the entire book. And in the very beginning, he talks about how God is a divine apothecary. And he says that it's so good. He talks about how all of these poisonous ingredients, when perfectly mixed together, are actually a medicine to the soul. Hmm. And so it's I'll just read a bit from the book. Sure. It says, yeah. this expression, work together, refers to medicine, several poisonous ingredients put together, being tempered by the skill of the apothecary, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. Yeah. So all God's providences being divinely tempered and sanctified work together for the best to the saints. Mm -hmm. So even when we think about like these poisonous acts, these, as Jesse called it, last week, this dark providence of God, where he allows things that we don't understand, they actually do work together for good for the ones who love God. And they bring about a divine medicine in our lives to purify us and refine us, and to work for our ultimate good. And even if it leads to death, which it will for some, we will all die at some point, yeah. we'll ultimately be reunited with him. And I've, I've actually heard a lot of people talked about talking about how, um, how COVID has restored marriages. People have had to work together um, because they can't, they're quarantined together and they're having to deal with their issues. And there are, that's just one example or people who are um, just like good things are coming out of something that looks so horrible. You don't anticipate that. So that was something that kind of came to my mind was, Thomas Watson's work. Yeah, Jesse. 
just to add to that, Miranda, I think it's a great point. I, I think it's clear uh, from scripture that God's sovereignty and God's power extends even over human sin and over human sickness. And we might classify sickness as falling under the corrupting effects of sin in the world. And, you know, God is able to control sin and its effects without himself sinning. He remains unstained from sin. And God often brings many goods out of the evils that we find in this world, including sickness. And often he shakes unbelievers, you know, of trusting in their own health and wealth. And he often refines his people in the furnace of affliction, sort of like what we've been talking about with chastising. You know, one, one guy that comes to mind is Augustine. I know he used to say in his city of God that God brings good out of evil, which is why he's able to ordain that evil exists. And so uh, God is so powerful that he can even use the evils we experience in this world for our good and for his glory. And he's able to direct them without himself partaking in, in some sort of uh, sinful agency. Yeah, I, I was, as you were talking there, Jesse, it reminded me, Mark, you'll have to help me out with the exact wording uh, from the old 1689 Baptist Confession, but there's something, uh, they use the language, they say that that God is the first cause of all things, and goes on to mention sin, yet without being the author of sin. Do you, do you remember the exact wording there? I don't know. Yeah, but basically says, like you, Jesse, says that sovereign over everything, and even even the existence of sin, yet not, not so, at, not uh, yet not so as to author sin, I believe is the phrase uh, that they use. It's a fine distinction, but it, it, here we are thinking about these things because we're having to figure out, is, is a pandemic within the sweep of God's sovereignty? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. That's, that again is one, it's like, that's the hermeneutical adrenaline that has been applied to evangelicalism as a whole. We are thinking about things. Our eyes are wider open to bigger issues than before. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Crystal, did you want to, you don't need to, but did, I, I didn't want to bypass you on that conversation. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you guys have been saying. I think I'm on the same page as Miranda in terms of the Puritans being so helpful mm-hmm. um, in, in, in understanding God's providence in difficult um, trials. What came to mind for me was Thomas Brooks wrote the book, uh, The Crook in the Lot, based on Ecclesiastes 7.13. Uh, you know, where it says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, it doesn't matter how much force you apply. If God made your lot crooked, there's no way you're going to straighten it. He's the one that has to mend it. Um, And I think, you know, for us as believers, we know it's for our good. And I think we just have to humbly respond with, we're so vulnerable. We can't stop this virus. We can't control our finances. We can't you know, we can't even say where we're going to go or when we're going to go there, but, but God has done it, you know, and it's, it's, it's for our good. And I think it teaches us to depend on him in everything. So, yeah. Miranda, you, you, you've talked about the Puritans, but to be honest with you, I think it's every generation except ours. Uh, Meaning I think you have to have been born after 70 years of increasing peace and prosperity to really not have a category for this. Like he, so even C.S. Lewis, uh, who, you know, served in World War I and lived through World War II, um, you know, he thought along those same same lines. I think it was in the problem of pain. Well, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but was it in the problem of pain where he he used the analogy of God as the physician as well? That that when I, you know, he'll say, when I go in to, uh, you know, have an appendix removed or, or what have you, the, the surgeon wounds me and hurts me but ultimately, that is for my good. It's for my healing. Uh, 
Um, I think every generation had categories for that, uh, perhaps except ours, uh, with, you know, which is just a reminder of, of why uh, from time to time God has to move us into the school of adversity. I think it's Calvin in one of his sermons on uh, Job referred to the school of affliction. God enrolls us in the school of affliction. Now, of course, that, that brings up one of the, the related conversations that we, we can have this week. We're in one of those unique stretches in the RMM Bible reading plan where three quarters of our readings are in the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, and so we've based this conversation largely in, in the Old Testament. And of course, many of our, you know, our contemporaries uh, are going to say to us, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Uh, what does that have to do with, you know, New Testament realities today? So how would you, how would you answer that? If, and I'm sure you hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. I've heard that multiple times this week in this conversation. I quoted Deuteronomy 32, 39. I, I the Lord, am he. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And I thought that was an argument stopper. Like I, I expected to spike my Bible and, and moonwalk out of the, you know, out of Twitter. and be, uh, and, and, and But the response was, yeah, but that's in the Old Testament. And that was a jaw dropper. For, for like, how is that a rebuttal? Uh, so how do, how do you answer that? Uh, I, I would want to say to somebody, be, first of all, be careful about how you use the Old Testament. Because mm -hmm. there is a sense where certain things are, are covenant related. And unless you're willing to make uh, the um, pe penalty for blasphemy and breaking the Sabbath death, you know, um, the, the people, and I say this to my congregation every once in a while, we're, we're preaching through numbers, you know. There's a situation there where the, a man is stoned for collecting sticks on the Sabbath. And I say, you have to remember, everybody in that generation stood at the base of Mount Sinai and mm -hmm. said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a covenant that exists there. Um, that being said, before any covenant exists, God shows himself in the Old Testament willing to discipline and judge uh, humanity at the flood, at Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 15, as he makes a, a covenant with Abram, and he says, you're going to go to Egypt for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its fullness. All through the Old Testament, we have this ongoing picture that's not related at all to a covenant existing with any of these Canaanite people or, or any of the Babylonians or Assyrians. Um, but I, I think that the controlling thing, even though all of those things are in the Old Testament, I, I would, when it comes to judgment, and, and can, um, I, I think that for a long time, and this was part of my upbringing, you know, um, we talk about being in an age of grace. And if we get an over-realized sense of that, you you start to hear people sort of suggest that, no, no, we're in an age of grace. God can't judge. Yeah. And you go, no, that, that's not the case at all. Um, the, I think the controlling passage right there for the wages of sin is death, yeah. which means if God takes you out by a tsunami on a beach without even a chance to look up or cry out, that's justice. God is doing justice to you. 
if you get a day or a week or a year or a lifetime without that kind of judgment in your life, without death, that's that's mercy from God. And if God brings a disaster that wipes out every single idol you have, medicine and economy and education and sweeps that all away, I have to say that that's probably halfway judgment and halfway mercy, um, which is probably where I'm at on this whole COVID-19 thing. Yeah, and I, I think just to, just in a general sense, you know, moving from the general to the specific, I, I, I with respect specifically to COVID-19, I think we have to be careful, very careful. You know, I think of John 9, where, you know, the disciples offer two potential reasons for a tragedy, and they're wrong on both, yeah. uh, which, which I just think is just a great reminder, just to be careful in drawing specific lines between specific sin and specific suffering. I, I think that rarely turns out well. Um, but just in a general sense, you know, my my concern is is on this issue with the Old Testament and the New Testament, that while I totally agree that we have to be careful how we extract principles from the Old Testament applied to the New, it concerns me that the sentiment seems to be that what we see in the Old Testament in terms of what it reveals about God's character no longer applies in the New Testament, because that's um, that's, I would say that's outside the bounds that you can say, um, you know, execution becomes excommunication. You can say, you know, the, the, the ceremonial, the ritual law, how you can talk about how things are fulfilled in Christ, but in terms, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we read the Bible basically to learn who God is, who we are and how God saves us in Christ. If the old Testament doesn't tell us who God is, we've got trouble. It's, it's three quarters of the Bible. I suspect that there are not very many amongst the Robert Murray McShane reading group that fall into that category because no, by definition, yeah. if you are regularly reading Old and New Testament, you're, you're going to have a far more uh, comprehensive view of Scripture. Yeah. Jesse, you were looking to jump in there. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I wanted to just say that, you know, a change in covenant does not indicate a change in God. You know, that's impossible. Rather, it indicates a change in how we relate to God. So God is unchangeable. He's immutable. That's what it means uh, for him to be God. Uh, but we do need to be careful about how we apply yeah. uh, the Old Testament in our new covenant context. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets, and we must interpret the law and the prophets accordingly. So when God sends a plague on his old uh, covenant people in the Old Testament, he did express his wrath. He did express his judgment against them. But now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so any sickness we incur as God's people is not his final wrath upon us. It's not his judgment upon us uh, under this new covenant. And so I'd say as it relates to COVID-19, God is still sovereign over sickness as always, as he always has been old and new. But we no longer receive sickness as the wrath of God upon us as as God's people. Yeah, that's well said. Paul, I, I um, you know, this kind of goes back to the doctrine of God again, right? If if we believe in God's immutability that He doesn't change, yeah. then the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Yeah. And um, you know, it's interesting the people who struggle with the Old Testament or those people who who responded to you. Um, one, I don't think they probably read the Old Testament all that much because when when you look at the Old Testament, I would argue that there's actually more passages in the Old Testament that beautifully portray the love of God than even the New Testament. 
Yeah. Right. The, the, the language that God uses in the Old Testament, that the passion and zeal and intimacy that he has for his people is incredible. Right. Like you, yeah. you think of uh, Zephaniah chapter three, where he says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Like this beautiful picture that God is going to sing over his children. Yeah. And so, you know, and you, you think of Micah 7 as well, that incredible passage. He's going to deal with our sin, throw it away. Um, and so my question to those people is, is, if you, if you dismiss the Old Testament because of these passages about the fierce judgment of God, then my question is, why don't you also dismiss the passages in the Old Testament about the love of God? Yeah. And the answer, of course, is simple. It's because you like one and you don't like the other. Um, but, but if we dismiss the Old Testament God, then we dismiss ultimately the love of God, which is portrayed throughout all of the Old Testament. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I... I... It is interesting how this this pandemic has put stress on our theology and kind of like when you take your car in for an emissions test and they put stress on all the systems, it reveals where the leaks are. I think we do have some leaks. And I think, you know, Peter, you mentioned the first leak is probably on our doctrine of God. And and perhaps our second leak is is on how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament uh, and uh, how we understand the character of God in on sunny days. You know, I, I think really the issue is we've had such a narrow experience base for God that we, you know, we've actually narrowed God. Um, you know, I think it all relate and figuring it out zone. So we might as well wrap that up. You were asking a question about Leviticus 26 uh, and some of the redemption prices. Did you want to unpack that? Sure. Yeah, it was Leviticus 27. Mm-hmm. Oh, 27. So, yeah. Yeah, no problem. And so as I was reading through, um, I wasn't sure. So I had, you know, as you're reading and as I'm reading, I often wonder, okay, what does this mean? What's going on here? And so at the beginning of Leviticus 27, it talks about making a special vow to um, dedicate a person to the Lord. And then it gives different values. And so it starts with 20 to 60 year old men being at 50 shekels of silver and women being at 30. And then it goes down in price. And then, of course, um, 60 plus being 50 shekels for a male and 10 shekels for um, a woman. And so like part of the approach was just what is this dedication vow to God? And then why are there varying prices in that? And um, why, you know, as complementarians, we often talk about, you know, we're equal in value and worth. Right. And right. and so why is this here? Why are there, it doesn't look like we're equal in value according to this shekel uh, principle here. So as I was approaching it, I was just curious, like what, what that was about. Um, and I did a little research on that, but I know, Mark, you have recently taught through Leviticus. So I was going to kind of, see what you had to say and then maybe uh, i can make some comments understand too yeah the character. Well, um th- this these passages are why the people you're talking to paul don't like the old testament um <laughs> i'll direct them to you yeah, uh, well I, I i i can't give them satisfaction uh, the the honest the honest truth is when you get in the old testament 
God has an awful lot to say uh, about slavery uh, and how we understand slavery in the Old the Testament. It looks different than what we think of. When we think of slavery, we often think of um, American, African slavery mm-hmm. people. God very specifically says um, the enslaver, there's there's serious penalty for the person that goes and takes a person and forces them into slavery. S- slavery in, in the Old Testament is, is really almost a welfare system where if my farm is failing and Paul's farm is doing really well, uh, how do I get myself out of this mess? I go to Paul and I say, let me sell myself to you. And I mean, all you've got all the uh, the year of Jubilee, you've got all these sorts of things that work into the Israelite experience. But if somewhere along the way, uh, I've sold myself to Paul because my farm is failing, and Paul says, yes, yes, I'll, I'll take you in, and and I want to be redeemed from that. There's a, a redemption price that can be paid to take me out of that. And and um, those those sorts of amounts were 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 set, and they were they were different depending on age and depending on gender because uh, somewhere along just the a, way, a, a, the uh, sort of work and the nature of the work that a person could do. And so when we get to Leviticus 27, uh, I think the Lord is just picking up on a concept and an idea and language that people already understand. If you want a passage that talks about uh, equality, you get into Exodus, I think, uh, Mm, somewhere around about chapter 30 or 31 and you get the temple tax where it says it's a half shekel and the rich may not pay more and the poor may not pay less but this is a voluntary vow that Mm -hmm. a person says i i i just want to dedicate myself in some way to the lord and the lord has established this system and he's basically just lifted uh, uh um an experience that they already have of the redemption price for slaves that's different at different ages so it'd be interesting to hear what you uh, dug up as you were looking into that yeah similar so i i um saw that this was talking about like almost in the co- uh, commentary that i read it was um by uh winham uh gordon winham gordon winham yeah. yeah so yeah. in the book of leviticus and so he said that often people make rash vows um, and times of distress. And so they will make this dedication to God of this vow of kind of they're in peril, help me and I'll do this. And so, um, and then he talks about how that is a very serious thing. And if you make a vow, you, and even in Ecclesiastes, he says, um, if you make a vow, something to the effect of keep the vow. Uh, that's my translation there. But basically it's it could be written to uh, show to discourage rash rashness in our speaking, but then also to show that um, we can pay, like it's almost like being enslaved from what I understood um, what he was saying is that we're almost enslaving ourselves to God or to the temple. And if we we can't, if I'm not um, a Levite, I can't work and serve in the temple. So you pay this price and this was the standard of price at that time. And it's more, descriptive rather than prescriptive of saying like, yes, please sell each other into slavery, but this is the prices of the custom and the time. And that's the, if you're at this age, this is what you should pay to the temple um, to dedicate yourself to God. I, I That's kind of what I saw it. Or it's, a la- it's basically a labor valuation, right? Similar, similar to how insurance companies do that. They're not 
valuing the worth of a soul as as much as they are you know it's a it's a valuation of labor replacement um yeah i it, it culturally located uh and and that that's part of the problem i mean I, part of the the whole problem i think that contemporary people have in reading the old testament is that all of these principles are embedded in an agricultural culture that's very foreign to us uh, I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy uh, 5.18 gives us a great example of how uh, all these laws are embedded in context, right? So the, the, the law, the principle, is embedded in its application. But there's, there's a way to extract the principle and then to apply it, you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit into a contemporary context. So he takes a law about oxen, right? Uh, don't, don't muzzle the oxen when it's treading out the grain, which, you know— would would be of no immediate value to unless you owned an oxen, uh, right? And and so you've got all these people saying, well, I don't own an oxen. I don't need that law. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul extracts the the principle, the concept out, and he actually applies it to pastors, uh, right? Which I hope he didn't think were, were literal oxen. Uh, but the, there's a principle there that, that can be extracted from that context and, and applied in this context. And that, I think, is uh, is the work we've we've lost the ability to do. Um, and it, it, it doesn't strike me as being all that complicated, but I, but I think Peter, your your earlier point is uh, germane here. I think at the end of the day, there's just a bunch of things about God we don't want to deal with, and so we just find it more convenient to say, well, that's culturally located, or, or that's inconvenient, or whatever, whatever. And we we narrow the canon down, to, you know, to a few places where we we find we have less trouble. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the um, one of the other issues that that I wanted to take a look at uh, came to us out of Titus chapter two. We were uh, just to switch gears here, moving to the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament for a few minutes. Uh, in in Titus chapter two, there's a fairly lengthy discussion uh, about a Paul's vision for a fairly robust uh, teaching ministry for women. And I thought we've got this great opportunity here with fair, two very accomplished uh, female teachers. I'm wondering your take on Titus 2 and how you see that being applied in the church today. Yeah, I, I found it interesting that um, Paul gave Titus instructions that older women should teach the younger women, um, just that there is something valuable about um, a younger woman hearing from an older woman how good doctrine mm -hmm. then can be applied to their life so that their faith and their practice match. Um, and I think like men often have, you know, examples of mature manhood on display in the church. Yeah. And I think it's really important, uh, for women to also have these examples of mature womanhood that they can look to in their church and see, oh, you know, that's what I want to be five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a healthy women's ministry, um, is what it's doing is just giving opportunities for this woman-to-woman -woman discipleship to happen so that um, older women who know good doctrine are then able, able to help younger women to make these applications. Okay, if you believe this, then this is how you should relate to your husband and to your children. This is what your character should be like. Yeah. This is what you should do with your time, you know, and, um, and make these sorts of applications. So I know there's some talk about whether, you know, women's ministry is really necessary or not. And I do think you can, it, it, not necessarily, I think this can happen um, casually, one-to-one -one relationships, but I do think a uh, more formal women's ministry is helpful, especially as your church gets bigger, 
just so that women aren't falling through the cracks and so that there's just opportunities created for women to have this kind of woman-to-woman discipleship going on. Yeah, Miranda, do you want to add to that as well? Yeah, I just looked at how like the, the entire book of Titus really is talking about how believers should live, how older w- men should live and how older women and younger women and that salvation, of course, is for all people, as we see in um, chapter 211, and that uh, the way they live is supposed to be attractive. So it mm-hmm. talks about attractive for all yeah. people. So for women, Paul gives and he really gives specific standards of living for everyone, but for women. And one of the themes, of course, is like self-control and what they do in word and deed. And so part of what this kind of these this list of behaviors and what they should do women. is reflected in the and fact that they have salvation, right? So you can see that in um, chapter 211, how they've been given this salvation, this unmerited grace, and that overflows into the way in which they live. And so um, another thing, kind of like what Crystal was saying too, is that women are to know sound doctrine. And by knowing that sound doctrine, they're supposed to teach one another the sound doctrine, which affects the way in which they live, which affects, you know, the ways in which they love their husbands and their children's and manage children and manage their home. So it's kind of, it's this overflowing, um, rooted in, in ultimately our salvation and rooted in sound doctrine that affects the way that we interact with one another. And, Mm -hmm. and he even talks about how this is, it comes at a great price. Like he talks about if we, these things that the word of God could be maligned and that's very serious when you think about defaming I had to look the word up of what does it like knowing what malign but what does that really mean and it defaming or smearing um the word of God and so there's that seriousness of okay the way that we live is is rooted in what we know and then the way in which we interact with one another the assumption there is that is that the the more women know good theology, the more they'll live in a way that commends Christ. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable thought. And, and I will say that's that has been a fascinating thing to watch over the last decade. One of the I, I don't know whether you'd want to call it a surprise. I don't know how you'd want to characterize it. But one of the most interesting, interesting things to watch over the last 10 years has been the growth of TGC women's ministry, both mm-hmm. south of the border and north of the border. Um, the the. I know in Canada, we get, uh, I think we had more women at the women's conference than we had at the national conference. We did. Uh, it was significantly more like there was like yeah. close to a thousand women who went to the women's conference. And then the first national conference was quite small in comparison to that. Yeah. But I think women are hungry for theology and they want to be taught that and they want to know the truth of God's word well, and, and, and away different. from like emotionalism, uh, which yeah. we're, we're people, we have emotions. Those things are good, but we also have minds and we want to love God with all of our heart, soul and mind. Well, 20 saying, years ago, women's ministry was very different than it is now. I mean, for, you know, like Mark, uh, for those of us who, who've been in pastoral ministry for, you know, 25, 26 years, I remember women's ministry 20 years ago and it was very different. It was, you know, how to be, uh, attractive to your husband and how to do this. That, and and there was very little legitimate content. And I remember the first time hearing that there's going to be a women's conference and John Piper's going to be there and Don Carson. I'm like, I don't know if that's a thing. 
and then there were there were thousands of of women who went, and I, I just thought that this is marvelous and this is new. This is a work of God, and and I think the effect of it has has been incredible. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and and it can happen. Like we think of the big scale, like the big conferences that yeah. attract thousands of people, but really the local church is the perfect place for theology to happen, right? Obviously. Yeah. Uh, we believe in the local church and uh, the interactions between the older and the younger. And I think every woman, no matter her age, finds herself either being older or younger. So just because, you know, we see Timothy, um, Paul telling Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for being young. So if you find yourself to be in your, you know, your 20s and you have a hunger and you desire to mentor and to teach, well, you know, like the Lord will bring those younger teenage girls or yeah. In this children's ministry, or if you're older, a lot of the things is just, you don't have to know all the answers. It's just being present. And if you're, I've often too, like, no matter your age too, it's like, okay, I want to learn from you. Who do you admire? What is it that they're doing that is attractive to you as a, you know, their love of the Lord. So approaching them and just having coffee and doing a Bible study together. Well, that transitions into sort of the next thing I was going to mention. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how Timothy was led to the Lord by his grandma and his, his mother. His mother and his grandmother were the pivotal influences. And I just wondered if, if the two of you would have anything to say about the, the role of mums and grandmas in evangelizing children. Yeah, I found this so encouraging. Um, because I mean, the domestic realm is sort of disparaged today. And just to think that, you know, moms and grandmas can have this great impact on the next generation is an encouraging thought. Like I'm sure Timothy's mom and grandma weren't thinking, oh, Timothy is gonna be this really influential guy. Like they didn't know, but they're handing down this, this heritage this to him, you know, and then he has this opportunity to impact uh, so many people through his ministry. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's not just women that give birth as well. Like, I think spiritual mothers and grandmothers in the church are so important. Yeah. Um, there's a story that uh, John Bunyan tells in his autobiography where he's like, he's walking down the street one day and he overhears three or four poor women talking. Maybe they're washing clothes or something. Um, and he says, you know, he thought he was a Christian. He says he considered himself a brisk talker in matters of religion, you know, but he overhears them talking about the work of God in their, in their lives and how they've changed and they're delighting in his word. And he just, he said it was, uh, well, he didn't say game changer. That's the word I'm thinking, but he realized they had something that he didn't have and he wanted it. And so, I like that story because they're not scholars, you know, they're just ordinary women being faithful in their everyday lives um, and, you know, talking with each other about the things of God. And I, I think spiritual mothers and grandmothers in our midst, you know, when they're just faithful in, in ordinary ways, it can have a profound influence on the next generation. Yeah. I would imagine it'd be difficult to find, uh, you know, a, a 40 year old Christian who, who won't refer to his mother or his grandmother as, as the primary evangelist of his life. I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost commonplace to the point where it's, it's like air, it's the background, of course. Uh, like, it, 
it, it, I think we, we vastly underestimate the evangelistic impact of mothers and grandmothers. Yeah. Well, um, Mark, we, uh, in just a minute, I'm going to get you ready to, to, to close us with a psalm here, but I, I want to just double check with Evan and find out if we had any questions coming in. Do we have any? We didn't have any. You got, we need to do better with questions. Uh, Peter, you had, you sent one in, so I'm going to give you a crack at it. Um, you were asking a question from first Timothy six seventeen, but I'm going to speak to those who are watching on and just say, uh, do start collecting questions as you, I, just even for myself, knowing we were going to have this discussion as I was going through my readings this week, I made a note of a few things that I thought, Oh, I, I'd love to hear from the group on this. Uh, start getting into that habit, star your questions and, uh, and bring them to us. Peter, you did that. You sent me an email the other day just uh, asking if we could spend some time reflecting on two, an Old Testament and a New Testament passage uh, that bear that on the same topic. So 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So there's been a lot of talk uh, in our culture, obviously, about how the rich and the poor are having a very different experience with COVID-19. Uh, lockdown looks different in a mansion uh, than, it, than it does for the poor. We've been having that conversation globally in terms of how poorer countries and, and more developed countries, but also even within the same uh, culture. Uh, how we experience this this situation. So, Peter, in your mind, uh, what are these two passages saying to rich people in the midst of this pandemic? Mm. Yeah, when I, you know, I've read First Timothy how many times, and you know, I gloss over verses seventeen and eighteen of chapter six, probably because I'm not very wealthy. But um, in the midst of this pandemic, and just thinking about the possible economic crisis, it just kind of jumped out at me. Yeah. And that word there that that Paul says, where he says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Um, and I think we've all just been hit with that um, in the last few weeks of just how quickly the riches that we thought were secure are gone in a moment. And yet Paul then goes on to say in verse 18, they are to do good. He's speaking to the rich here who are part of the church. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Mm -hmm. to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And it's just, it dawned on me that wh whatever happens in the coming months, how that's going to affect us economically as churches, but also as individuals, um, I think there's a call upon the rich in our churches to think very hard about what does it look like in this time to be generous in the midst of loss to care for those who are less fortunate. Um, it just really stood out to me. And, and I don't know, have all the answers for what that looks like. Um, but I think as Christians, we need to be thinking in those categories in the coming months, especially if there is really an economic crisis that we're going to experience. So that just kind of was kind of on my heart, heart when I read that. So, yeah, I just got a, an email or a couple of days ago from a, a missionary friend of mine Um on, on behalf of a, an orphanage in South Africa, and uh, they are out of food. Uh, like it's, you know, here we, you know, we joke about hoarding toilet paper and all, you know, am I going to find Lysol wipes today at Costco? Um, in the developing world, it's, you know, mm -hmm. folks are running out of food. 
Uh, so yeah, Any, anyone else want to just jump in on this reflection? It is, uh, again, I think it's one of those stress tests uh, for us. And, uh, you know, thinking back on John 9, I, I want to be careful about uh, saying this is because of that and uh, drawing those direct lines between particular suffering and and uh, particular sins. I want to be careful there. But but I, I, I think it is appropriate for us to ask the question, what is God saying, right? What would God have me learn uh, here? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think we'd be missing the boat if we weren't asking that question, right? Like, well, I think we've learned lots about what we've taught well in the church and what we haven't taught well, and and I think we're learning lots too about um, what we value, what we what we protect, what we're willing to share. Um, yeah, so I, I think there are lots of lessons here, and some of those lessons have to do with money. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we missing here? Any other lessons? Uh, coming out of this COVID-19, just before we wrap up, uh, that that have come to you through the word this week? I think just, this goes back to kind of our first subject, just how little control we actually have. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't want to be political, but, you know, you hear all these political, um, these political leaders talking about our responsibility to change climate and, yeah. And yeah. yet in a moment's no notice, a virus hits us and, and there hasn't been a nation basically, like there's been a few nations that have been able to slow it down pretty effectively, but the majority have been wreaked by, like just wrecked by it. Yeah. And um, so it's just a reminder to me of just how little control we have that we, we are utterly dependent upon God for life, for breath and everything. And, um, you know, and thinking about the judgment of God and the mercy of God, we, you know, we never talked about this, but, you know, Genesis 3 God cursed the creation. And so the manifestations of God's curse are everywhere, every day in our world, but also his mercies. And both are are a call for us to to examine our hearts and to repent, um, both the church and and the world. So the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. So well, that's the function of the curse, right? Like I I often think of the curse as like God poisoning all the wells in, in the mm-hmm. desert so that we can't run away from them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the whole idea that the curse is meant to drive us back to, to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the curse is a kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if God is life, then, then the curse is a kindness. Then, then anything that would drive us back to God mm-hmm. is a kindness. Yeah, absolutely. Brother Mark, uh, we I think we stumbled onto something last week. We uh, we had you read one of the Psalms, one of my favorite things about the RMM Bible reading plan. And if you're just tuning in and, and trying to figure out what is this they keep talking about, this RMM Bible reading plan, um, it, I would say this, reading your Bible is a little bit like losing weight. Um, if you don't, it doesn't really matter what plan you have, but you better have a plan because uh, if you don't have a plan, you're not going to lose weight. And if you don't have a plan, you're not going to read your Bible. So um We've been using the RMM plan for various lengths of time. I've been using it since 2012. One of the reasons I landed on the RMM plan is because it takes you through the Psalms twice every year. So almost every day, not quite, but almost every day of the year, you're reading a Psalm. And uh, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite parts of the Bible. So I won't say that the Psalms are my favorite part of the Bible, but I'm a Psalm guy. And uh, I appreciate a day with a Psalm. 
And so last week uh, we had Brother Mark uh, read one of our psalms that we ran across uh, over the over the past week that seemed to bear on our situation. And I thought we could maybe do that again today. Mark, would you uh, walk us through, just read for us Psalm 30, and then we'll meditate on it for a few minutes and then use it to close our time in prayer. Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I sit in my prosperity. I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God. I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Well, I thought this would be a, a useful psalm for us to end with, uh, largely because I knew we were going to start with Ecclesiastes 7.14. And uh, this psalm covers some of that same ground. It, it narrates a transition from the top to the bottom and then back again. It's, it's kind of like he, he begins in the school of prosperity. He is bumped into the school of adversity and then brought back finally in the providence of God to the school of prosperity again, and he narrates that journey. Willem Van Gemeren in his commentary says this, it's great. He says, like a bucket that was lowered down in a well and then raised to draw water up, so the Lord pulled the psalmist out of the grips of Sheol. So down and back again. I, I, I said that, and then it sounded to me like the Hobbit's journey. What was the Hobbit's journey? Was it down and back again? There and back again. There and back again. <laughs> this, so this is not the Hobbit's journey. This is the psalmist's journey, uh, down and, and back again. And I love that the, the idea of joy comes in the morning. Um, yeah, there's a sense in, in which we all need, for us to have a thorough education in the whole school of life, we do need to be lowered down in, into Sheol. We, we, we do need to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, I'm, I, uh, I'm working my way through Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress again. And there's the, the valley of the shadow of death there. God has his purposes for that. It's, he doesn't take us down there to kill us, um, but, but it's part of the journey. You can't get from the city of destruction to the celestial city without passing you know, through the valley, uh, the valley of humiliation, the valley of destruction, whatever you want to call it. You got to go down to go up. And uh, so anyway, I, I just thought I'd, I'd love to hear from from any of you how that psalm ministered to your soul this week, and then we'll we'll use it to close our time in prayer.
Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, uh, I love Psalm 30, uh, really for two primary reasons. I'd say the first reason, because the Lord indeed did raise up my soul from Sheol, from the realm of the dead. Uh, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and now because of Christ, I'm raised to newness of life in him. And that's all of our story uh, as Christians. And still, obviously, I'm awaiting my resurrection body, that final uh, lifting up uh, like unto Christ's glorious body, as are all of God's children. And so by the atonement that Jesus procured for us on the cross, we've all been born again uh, if we're in Christ, born from above, regenerated, given uh, new life from the grave. So I'd say that's that's probably my first uh, takeaway, um, Christological uh, New Covenant takeaway from uh, Psalm 30. And then secondly, I love Psalm 30 because it teaches us to pray. It is a wonderful framework uh, for prayer. In the prayer here, we see this sort of alternation between thanking God for his past salvation and then prayer to God for present salvation or present rest. Which is how almost every Psalm works, right? Like there's this, the sense in the Psalms is that if we just take a minute and remember how God has worked in the past, we're going to have way more faith for our present and for our future salvation. Absolutely. And so if, so I don't know who's listening to this, this podcast, but if, if, a believer, if you're a believer listening um, and you're struggling, you know, with indwelling sin, whatever that might be, then you can pray these two things back to God. First, you can thank him for all that he's done in Christ to wash away your guilt of your sin. And then second, you can ask God to rescue you from the current power uh, that your sin has over you. And so, uh, and so it's a wonderful framework for prayer, uh, especially for somebody struggling uh, when they're when they're going through a hard time, maybe indwelling sin. Yeah, well, you, you talked about the journey and you made the Christological application. I'm so glad you did. I mean, there's a sense in which this is every Christian journey. This is the archetypal Christian journey. That's what baptism is, right? right? Down, 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 under the water, down to Sheol, and then up, up, up into resurrection life. I mean, that's that's why baptism is a down and then an up, because this this is the Christian life. Jesus, you know, went down, down into death, and then up, up, in resurrection and ascension. So yeah, this is the journey. Anyone else? That was a different Psalm, but in the Psalms, Psalm 32, seven, um, it says, you are my hiding place and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Yeah. And anytime I, I hear hiding place, I think of Corey Ten Boone and the, the yeah. hiding place and reading yeah. that. And even as I was kind of reflecting on that this week, and I was thinking of the book and her experience. And she, she was talking about, if you remember in the book, if you've read it about the fleas that Betsy and um, Corey got while they were in the concentration camp and how the fleas, she was despising them. And yet Betsy was telling her to, to praise God for the fleas. And, and it kind of goes back, it circles back to this, the apothecary, this, this things, God using these things in our life, like the flea moments that cause such a they are a hardship and we can mourn that and we can weep in the night as psalm 30 says and yet she Corey talks about how the that was good because through that it caused the soldiers not to come in and not to mess with them and and there are these silver linings this joy that will come and like you're saying remember the faithfulness of god reflect on the past and remember how kind he's been to us. Um, we don't know how the joy will come, but it will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Anyone else? I um, 
just the line where, well, there's two things, but the line in verse five for his anger is but for a moment yeah. and his favor is for a lifetime. Just the fact that God can actually be angry with me as his child. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I realize I'm closed in the righteousness of Christ and, and I understand that, but you know, scripture says that I can grieve the spirit. And um, so the fact that God can be angry with me, but it's for a moment, but in his anger, his favor never changes towards me. He is, he is always for me if I'm his child. And, um, and that's just a beautiful truth. I think a very securing truth for every Christian. And the other thing is, is just, um, and I, I have to be careful with this, but I've been, I've been reading the Psalms through a different lens, um, kind of through the way in which Augustine approached the Psalms in that it's David's words, but it's also Israel's words. But Christ is also the new Israel. And, and the Psalms are almost God, Christ's prayers to the Father in, in certain aspects. And you kind of see how, like you kind of already alluded to, Paul, that Christ experienced exactly what this psalm is conveying. And it's almost to, to see it through the lens of this is Jesus speaking, Christ, yeah. his Father, um, has just kind of opened the psalms up to me in a new light. I know you have to be careful with that because um, you don't want to just see every word that, you know, the whole allegory and all those things. But um, no, but it's appropriate to see this as messianic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a sense in which all psalms are messianic, as right. you say, but, but yeah. this in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just been really encouraging to me. Yeah, no kidding. I would just say that um, I really appreciate how the psalms have taught me to pray. And Jesse's already just said this better. But um, the one thing I really appreciate was is the intimate language, you know, this relational language where... Yeah. You know, he can pray like verse 10, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, you know, where he can say, listen, like, hear me and act. Um, And I think sometimes we feel like, well, can we really say that? Like, is that too presumptuous? And so I think I just really appreciate how the Psalms give us permission to approach God boldly, but then also just they're so God-centered that they reorient all of our thoughts toward God. Um, so, yeah, I just appreciate it in terms of just helping me to pray better. Yeah. Mark, were you jumping in or just agreeing? Yeah, no, I, I everything has been good. And I mean, to be to be a little vulnerable, I mean, um, I, I was praying this psalm uh, this week before we discussed whether we and and, uh, you know, I've, I've been dealing for a, a while, quite a while with a kind of a slow burning burnout that just works mm-hmm. discouragement and weariness in me. I was due for sabbatical uh, this summer, which has been put on pause. And the, the I mean, the, the honesty of the Psalm, the line that is right there, what, what profit is there in my death? And I feel fine. Don't, don't be concerned. I'm not dying, but there's that sense sometimes with discouragement and weariness that it almost feels like death, but I mean, the psalm just kind of gave to me permission, uh, you know, that here's a psalmist who was able to say to God, God, is there any profit in my death? If I go down in ashes, will the dust praise you? Uh, there's hope in the psalm. It, 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 it's redemptive in the end. Um, I, I'm not at that point of of joy right now. I, I'm, I'm in the midst of that sense of, of weariness and discouragement. And it's good to find in the scripture something that allows you to express that in a, in a I think, a, a faithful and godly way to God. God, I, I don't want to burn out. I don't want to be reduced to nothing. Um, but I feel this sometimes, you know, and, and so that was helpful to me this week. Yeah, that's the beauty of the Psalms, really. They, they sort of mark out for us the full 
acceptable range of human emotions and experiences. And, and so you, we can join in, right? If you, if you feel like you are on the downslope, you are being lowered into the well. Well, you can join the psalm and sing it right to the end when joy comes in the morning, right? Uh, if, if you feel like you've done the whole journey, I was down and now I'm up, then, then great, yeah, sing it. Uh, if you're right still at the bottom of that dark, dark pit and you wonder, will God lift me up or is he going to leave me down here? Right. Then again, it's encouraging to remember that, no, 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 you know, joy comes in the morning and 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 judgment, uh, whatever you want to call this chastisement, uh, the, our, our time in the school of affliction. Uh, you know, the Bible refers to that as the strange work of God. Right. Uh, meaning that the, the default of God is this up, up, up. The, the default of God is 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 joy and 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 blessing. This is this is the strange work. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. And uh, so wherever you are on that spectrum, you can you can enter into this psalm and uh, and and ride it right to the end. And uh, that's I think that's why we love these psalms. Well, let's uh, let's use this psalm. Uh, thank you, everyone who has joined us again. Uh, we hope you uh, start getting into the habit of marking your uh, your reading plan with questions. I know it's hard to remember what what you read six days ago in Ecclesiastes that stuck out to you. Uh, get into the habit of marking that down. We want to make this as interactive as possible. Uh, we'd love to be uh, engaging with you a little bit, uh, even as much as we've enjoyed engaging with one another. However, we hope it was helpful as you listen to us wrestle with God's word. Uh, we do pray that the spirit ministered to you. Let's, uh, let's use Psalm 30 now as we close our time in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we will extol you. Uh, you have drawn us up. Lord, uh, all of us have, have been on uh, versions of that journey down, down, down into the valley of the shadow of death, down into the pit. And uh, Lord, you've been faithful in the past. Lord, I want to pray for my brother Mark right now. Lord, who is, uh, who is in, in the bottom of the well, uh, just in terms of energy. Lord, all of our tanks are finite. Uh, what a marvelous thing it is for a, a gifted person, a gifted man to be reminded that his tank does not have infinite supply. And so, Lord, you ordain a season when we run on fumes. Uh, Lord, it, it, uh, it humbles us, it slows us, and it, it causes us to look to you as the eye of the servant is on the hand of the master. So our eyes are on you in moments like that. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill his tank again, uh, that uh, joy would come in the morning, uh, that up, up, up uh, he would go. And uh, he would be reminded that your favor has been the dominant note in his life. Um, and uh, that there was a moment uh, of exhaustion. There was a moment of, of weariness, but uh, favor for a lifetime. I, I pray that that would be the dominant note that he would experience. And we know, Lord, that uh, for all of us, as, as has been mentioned, the ultimate horizon of this psalm is eternity. And, and Lord, we know that uh, 40 billion years under your favor and kindness will make every season in the school of affliction seem like a heartbeat at best. And, and so, Lord, we, uh, we are mindful of that. Lord, help us uh, to learn whatever lessons there are in whatever courses you would enroll us in, in the school of affliction, in the school of life. Lord, help us to learn what lessons there are to be learned on the sunny day. Uh, Lord, let us never lose sight of your kindness. Uh, but Lord, let us also learn what lessons there are to be learned on the cloudy day, the stormy day, uh, when we take our seats for a moment in the school of adversity, help us to learn what there is to learn there too. 
Lord, uh, thank you that you are with us in these journeys. Uh, as has been said tonight, you are our hiding place, Lord, but you are also with us uh, as we uh, find shelter from the storm. You are with us in it, and Lord, you work your power through it. You turn our mourning into dancing so that we can sing again. Lord, I know that you have a, a song to sing in and through us to our generation. Lord, I do believe that there is going to be a great season of evangelistic opportunity on the other side of this pandemic. And so, Lord, help us to, uh, to be drawn deeper into the word, to learn uh, deep, strong, bracing truths of God in this dark season, that when we are brought forth, we would shine as day and summon many people out of darkness into your marvelous light. We ask that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. 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 Thank you, friends. And uh, thank you for joining us. We'll be back here again, God willing, next Thursday at 8 p.m. for another episode of Going Deeper Online. We'll see you then. God bless. 